In today's episode of Staging the Nation, we chat with one of the most exciting early career writers in Australian theatre and talk about how we bring bold and unapologetic new stories to the stage. Welcome to Staging the Nation. We'd like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today, and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, we shine a light on some of the Australian writers that are grappling with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. In this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with the wonderful James Lazzi about his excellent new work, Lady Tabuli. Lebanese Australian Danny yearns to live his best life, but acceptance seems impossible from his conservative family. It's the day of his nephew's baptism and Danny is godfather. Living back home with his religious Lebanese mother, he's thrown into the maelstrom of preparations and high emotions. God forbid this christening comes second to the Bustanis. The family can't afford to lose face, especially with Danny recently and mysteriously calling off his engagement. But secrets will come out and among the sugared almonds and balloon deliveries, Danny discovers the true colours of those closest to him. Where do you turn when the people you love refuse to accept the truth? James has been granted a place in the 2019-21 Sydney Theatre Company Emerging Writers Programme. In 2021, his new play Queen Fatma was produced by Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta as part of the 2021 Sydney Festival and enjoyed a sold out season. It was James's second year at the festival with Lady Tabuli also enjoying a sold out season at the 2020 festival. In 2019, Omar and Dawn enjoyed a sell out season at the King's Cross Theatre. James's play Son of Biblos has been programmed as part of Belva's 25A 2021 season. Welcome, James Alazi. Hello. Thanks for having me here. It's so lovely to have you here. And I think, you know, first off the bat, we should kind of acknowledge the fact that uh, we, we do know each other quite well. Yes, we I do. I do know your work quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, having had the absolute joy of directing three productions of your work, uh, an earlier version of Lady Tabuli, the, the Sydney Festival version of Lady Tabuli and uh, Omar and Dawn. Um, but it's really wonderful to sit down with you. We haven't actually taken the time in this kind of context to to really, really talk about it. Mm. So let's jump in. Um, and I'm going to start by asking you a question that I have asked every single person in this series because it, it truly fascinates me. That moment where you decide that something can be a play, what was that moment for Lady Tabuli? I think um, there was a moment where I was driving with my nephews in Punchbowl and we, were, we drove past the church that I'd always gone to when I was younger um, and they were having a festival and it was fun, there was rides, fairy floss and so on and, you know, I took my nephews down, they wanted to go down and we walked into the, you know, in this massive parade uh, as I was buying the, can- the fairy floss, uh, I looked around and I could see these red signs um, and it stated that this festival that we were in, it was for the, f- the festival of the family. Um, 
and I realised right then and there that it was actually a festival to the no campaign for gay marriage in During the church. During the plebiscite. That's right. Mm. Um, so you had these little kids running around, you know, having fun and carrying these, you know, these signs, you know, saying Festival of the Family. Um, and I realised right then and there that I have taken my nephews to a place where I completely disagree with um, and this is a church that I've always gone to in all my life, you know. And I realised then and there that I was so furious, mm. but I don't want revenge. I want to create something beautiful, you know, for mm. those that feel ostracised from that. And that's where, you know, the idea for Lady Tabuli um, sort of came from. And amazing. And and where where to from there? You, you, you sat down and did you kind of... Uh, start conceiving who might be in this world how did you how did you go about it well you and i <laughs> sat down after yeah. griffin batch festival yeah and we wanted to sort of flesh out the work um and we sat down and we spoke about what what we could do to um make it more real uh, make it now and you know in the original i had an angel you know mm. and i had it was quite it was lighter um, and so I went back and I think it was then that when we sat down and we had a conversation about it that I thought, you know, I want to explore sexuality but I also want to explore the no, the people that uh, use religion to sort of uh, cut people out because essentially that's what they're, they're doing. They're cutting people out. Mm. Um, and we're teaching young kids that it's just normal to... Uh, to, to say no to a couple that want to get married who just happen to be gay. Mm. I think I wanted to explore that. And so the version that was at Riverside was that version. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that process because I think what, what was what's really great about the evolution of this work is it seems to me in that in that first version that was at Batch Festival, you were kind of really trying to work Danny out, right? Mm. You were trying to get into who's the central character in the work and by the second version you 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 had really worked him out mm. and really worked out um you know I, I guess the big difference being in the one version there was an internal wrestle and in the second version he kind of put that wrestle on on other people mm. um why was it important for you to 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 start with that earlier version or, or i guess a different way of asking that question is is what did you learn from that earlier version of the work? I loved that earlier version of mm. the work. I thought it was um, quite beautiful yeah. uh, and emerged, you know, migrant um, journey and children of migrants as the first generation. Um, but I knew that I had to magnify this one character and give him a stronger voice, whereas the earlier version was more, it was a lot of voices coming together and saying, you know, this is that and this is this, whereas the one that we had here, the mm. the one that we are talking about today, I think I needed to find a Danny, that, um, I, the main character, that had a stronger voice and that knew who he was because you can't create a story if the character doesn't know who really they are. Mm. Um, so he was much more sure of himself. Um, and then from there I was able to create a web, you know, and, you know, in the chaos of the first scene mm. where he's, you know, he shouts, I am gay. 
and but they're just so busy with the you know vacuuming the <laughs> yeah. the ground and you know pistachio and almond sugared almonds they just carry on it's like he said nothing he just said you know switch the light off yeah so yeah i think i needed to give him a stronger voice that was the most important part mm. and you did that and you know it was it was so wonderful to see uh, a, a work exploring these kind of queer ideas that actually that character went you know it's on you mm. I'll, you know I'll, I'll be here but actually this this is this is what I'm doing mm. um, and now it's on you and that's really what the final version of um, Lady Tabuli really does is it kind of puts the um, it puts the microscope on everybody really yeah absolutely not just this character kind of wrestling with something mm. something else is also very true of the original seed of it or the original iteration which is you you introduce this kind of fantasy world so the angel obviously didn't survive into the next final version but there is this kind of other world mm. that that does survive and that um is something that kind of interested you can you talk a little bit about that world and and i guess why it was uh important for you to have that element mm. The supernatural world, mm. I think, is essential for the play. I think he, we as individuals, spend so much time thinking in our minds, and we, you know, we tend to overthink. Um, the supernatural world and Lady Tabuli allowed us to um, go into his mind, you know, uh, sort of a, a magnifying glass, if you if you will, into someone's psyche, and so the weeping women. Mm. You know, and the Sabah, <clears throat> they're all facets of his personality. His mother is, you know, he cra he craves his mother's acceptance, but his mum or his mother will start to yearn, uh, or mourn. Sorry, the idea of her son getting married and having having kids and living the life that she wants him to, but he doesn't, and so he has to mourn that passing. So I, I had to sit down and go. How does this character mourn his mourn his mother's idea of him passing that idea of him passing away and creating a new sort of facet of his personality, mm. a proud you know whatever he wants to call himself, and that's where the supernatural world came from. It also taps into you know how how so many queer people um, uh, sort of diva culture and and how queer people find artists who they, you know, they, they escape through and with. Mm. Um, mm. And it's so, it, it was so powerful, I think, for people and, and certainly the work that that, that person you chose um, was that kind of iconic diva but also sat in that Lebanese space mm -hmm. because what it allowed you to do is pick somebody who was an icon for, for both Danny but also for his mother, Dana, mm. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of directly... Oh collide what I think is a big theme in your across all your work, which mm. is this kind of intergenerational conversation. Mm -hmm. What is it about what you're trying to look at in, 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 in your work that is important for you to, to look intergenerationally, to look at experiences across? I know for a fact that people that come to see my work don't normally go to the theatre. Mm. There was one night when... There was a the, you would know the scene where Danny, you know, tells his uncle, you know, I don't believe being gay is a sin. Mm. And if you remember, or if you don't, there was a woman in the back row, 
that shouted, it is a fucking scene. I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the middle of the scene. And then a woman in the front row got up and shouted at her and said to her, sit down, you bitch, you know. And she started crying mm. really loudly. So <laughs> he's... I yeah, that was an explosive <laughs> night. Yeah. It was, you know. And we've, we had people walking out. So I, I just think that the work that I create, I know for a fact that it's going to polarise two ends. You know, you're going to have people that, you know, will associate and enjoy the work and will think about it. And you've got people that will be completely against it. I already knew this coming into the work. So for me to use Sabah, who's loved by everyone, mm. you know, you know, the big macho man that rules the roost to, you know, the old grandmother and flipping it on its head, the stereotypes of what we view as, you know, um, symbols of our society and saying, you know what, I love Sabah too. This character is gay. He associates with her strength. Who are you to take that from him? You know, you're, I think these figures are important, you know, to, to flip on their head and to say that we should all be accepted. We should all be part of, you know, that, that community. But obviously we don't live in that world. And so people love to cut and ostracise. Mm. But, you, you know, you, the wonderful thing is you approach the characters with such love. So even, even when you're presenting, as you say, the kind of no argument in this case, which is done through really through the prism of the other three characters to differing extents in the work, um, you do humanise all of them mm. and you do kind of write all your characters with a degree of love. Would you say that's, that's true? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Um, that's where I come from, you know. We love a lot. We, use, we don't say, it's funny, we don't say I love you. Mm. Uh, it's a very Western thing. But our actions... Is, is love, you know. My dad won't necessarily say, James, I love you today, you know. Oh, you know, have a great day, I love you. I don't think he's ever said that. But he will go to the kitchen and make me a roll with tomatoes and, you know, whatever. That's him saying, I love you, have a great day, you know. And I think um, those sort of things is what I wanted to infuse into the characters that I wrote. You know, Danny's mother doesn't agree with him. She wants him to, you know, hook up with a chick and mm. have 50 kids. But I know, in the, even in the play, she kind of goes up to him and berates him a little bit and says, if you don't come to this wedding, you know, then you're out of here kind of thing. But, um, you know, she, there's still that element of love. It will come, you know, it will come later if it doesn't come now. You know, and it also, the stakes are high because what's he losing as well? Now, what's Danny losing if he, yeah, okay, you know what? I'm gay, but I'm going to, you know, marry a chick and we're going to fucking have 50 kids. Mm. But I just think that if you don't go against that, what happens? What do you lose? Is he going to lose the family that he loves him and the sister that, you know, has her grandchildren? And also how heartbreaking is it when, you know, a sister tells you, you can't baptise my kid, you can't be the godfather. Yeah. So I think, and it's happened. You know, it's happened, uh, you know, to a very close person to me. Mm. Um, so, and that's, you know, that changes you, I think, and all in the name of religion as well. Mm. Mm. Let's talk about religion because, you know, I, I think in, in, in many of your works, it's something that you unapologetically 
explore. Um, but I wouldn't describe any of your work as anti-religion. Mm. Um, you, you know, I would say that you acknowledge that, and that people have, some people have faith and people have the right to have faith. What is it specifically about religion that you are trying to say in works like Tabulu? Religion is a very complex thing. Mm. And I know that if you push against it too much, you're not going to get anywhere. And I've learned that the hard way. So you've got to work with it. And you've got to work with the people that follow that religion and that faith every single day of their lives. So how do you get into someone's mind that has all these ideals of religion and what religion is, you know, what do you do? How, how, and so I needed to present the person that is religious, you know, and that is using religion to kind of like push away people and I needed to present the other side as well. And I think we did that successfully in Lerita Bule. Both sides had valid points but at the end of the day, I will be biased and say that, you know, really I have I will try to flip religion as much as I can on its head, you know, if I can get my message out. Mm. Because it's doing much more damage if I don't. Mm. You know, if someone that come that doesn't come to the theatre, rocks up to the theatre and hears about Lady Tabule and what it is, you know, and they watch it and I haven't done enough to show them that, you know, this you're not the only one. Other people have gone through this. Stay strong. You know, if I haven't done that successfully, then what's the point of me writing? And, you know, I don't write for anything else. I definitely don't write for the money. You know, I write for to create a message and to create a belonging. As what I didn't have growing up, you know. My mum used to take me to the theatre. She doesn't understand English. Mm. But she wanted me to sort of see that connection between the audience and the actors. So... And I had that, but I still never saw myself up on the stage. And so I think that if if I had seen a show like Lady Tabule, um, it would have changed a lot of things for me. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Mm. And I remember us talking about it, mm. you know, going if we had see, if we had works like this in, in, in our teen years, how how different the world would have been. Absolutely. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Instead uh, we had, you know, normal the, I won't go into it. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was certainly an experience. I mean, people were... I, I was overwhelmed in, in the foyer with people coming up, queer people who were so deeply moved mm. and many of whom had brought their families with them or they, or they had come with their families and someone else in the family had initiated coming to the theatre um, because, you know, not everybody kind of necessarily knew where the work was going to go mm -hmm. story-wise. Mm. Um, and it was quite profound to, to, to see queer people, not just of Lebanese background, but other, uh, other eth uh, ethnic backgrounds um, with, with similar ingrained kind of family um, traditions and conservatisms mm. be really quite moved by, by the experience of being in the room live. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I think the more specific you are, the more universal you are. Mm. And I'll never just write just for my culture. I think that's quite selfish. But if you do write specifically in certain moments that you've been through, no matter what background you come from, no matter how old you are, you're going to connect to it. You know, you have to. 
There was one night I also remember this 70... He, he told me he was about 75. He came up to me. He hugged me. He had tears in his eyes. And he said, I've waited 50 years to see a story like this. And then he walked off before I could ask him any more questions. Mm. You know, he just thanked me and he just... And to me, that's really special. I think having, you know, a man that I don't know that's older than my father sort of hug a stranger. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm the most social person when it comes to things like after the show, I'll go talk to every Tom, Dick and Harry. But he waited all night mm. to come and speak to me and just to say those few words. And I could see him in the corner of my eye. I just didn't know who he was. And he waited and waited. And when he found a moment while I was by myself for a sec, he came and thanked me, you know. I don't know if you remember, but I came and told you, you know. Yeah. It was very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole experience, and, and it, it also happened with us on Omar and Dawn. It happened in the original version of Lady Tabule. I mean, I, I have never worked on work before where I have not known so much of the audience. And I don't, I'm not even talking about industry. I'm talking about the, you know, the audience was just astonishingly broad and people from community and people who, many people who had never been to the theatre before. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you're working in a, in, in, a, in a space in the industry where, as you say, it's quite active. It's not just about the subscriber audience that goes to all the theatres coming in, kind of seeing the work. There are there are people who are making the decision to, to walk into a theatre, a lot of them, for the first time or for the first time in a long time. Mm. Absolutely. And so this, you know, this idea of how, how conscious are you of the people that you're making the work for? I can't say when I write a piece I think of the audience. Mm. Um, I only think of myself, really. And I try to create the best story I possibly can. If I was to think of everybody else, I I wouldn't be able to sort of be laser-focused on the story. Mm. And so I write and I say to myself, is this good? Is this okay? You know, is it good enough for an actor to spill those words out of their mouth? If it is, then I go with that. But I am conscious... You know, you know, there's grandparents that come and that saw my work, you know. And I have been, when we did Omer and Dawn at King's Cross Theatre and Lady Tabule, I was ridiculed a lot by a few people from the, the community. Mm. I was sent emails and letters. Like, who even sends letters, right? Yeah. But they, they'd send me letters, you know. Um, who are you to speak for us? You know, you're a fag, you've got, you, you, you know, you're not, you're not a spokesperson pretty much. And so you've got to get to the end of that and have a thick skin and say to yourself, well, am I going to deal with all this shit first? Can I deal with it? Because um, if you can't, if you're going to write about something that you know is going to sort of polarise people's thoughts, you need to have the thick skin at the end to go, this is my story. If you don't like it, I don't really care. Mm. You know, but you came to see my show. If you don't like my work, don't come to my next show, you know. But I know that the people that I have affected, and you would would sense this as well, being there with me, that they were really affected by it, you know. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. No, I do. I mean, I got got emails on Omar and Dawn. Mm. There was a work I did a couple of years ago where I got letters and 
mm. emails were it was touching on religion it was touching on you know a number of things and it's kind of how do you how do you get to that point though because you you are operating in a territory with some of your work not all your work but some of your work that is quite it, it's it's a hot spot it's quite explosive do you do you ever feel in danger or or i guess that you're you're nervous about what's about to happen when a work opens never mm. never i don't feel anything mm. i think if i put on a good show with with creatives and a director that i love people that support me um, I don't feel nervous at all, you know. I've been through all that. Yeah. I've, you know, you've got to get through all that before you sit there and you go, this is my story, this is part of my brand that I'm allowing you to see a part of my past, you know. Mm. If I was to say, you know, I don't think any writer should put out work and be nervous about it. If you're going to be nervous about your work, you have to be, your, you know, you have to be your number one fan. If you don't push your work and stand behind it and go, this is what I've created, love it or hate it, then you shouldn't be writing. You know, I'll go write an adaption of Alice in Wonderland or something. Mm. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know, what's, what's clear is that you've used that kind of, because you've moved through so much, you're now in a position to kind of have that thick skin and to yeah. write those stories for the people who don't have them and who can't write them necessarily right now. Exactly. You don't yeah. grow up having a thick skin. Mm. You know, you don't go through school and you don't go through all those trials and tribulations being strong and I'm never nervous. You've got to be broken at one point and you've got to heal to get to the other side, you know. That's how you write the best stuff. Yeah. Mm. I want to talk about something else that, that often happens when people from um, different experiences, different voices start writing for the Australian stage. Mm. So, you know, we use the word diversity a lot. I think the word diversity is a bit can be a bit problematic. I'm not a big fan of it. But when we start actually telling stories from, from, from the voices that make up Australia, what can happen, I've observed, is, is that, you know, a, a couple of things. One is that people always can assume that every story is that person's personal story, mm. which might not necessarily be the case, and that also that person is only going to write from experiences from their background. Have you experienced that in your kind of, in your kind of path as, a, as an early career writer? All the time. Yeah. All the time. Like, oh, James, you went through that, did you? Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. did you really do that? You know, it's, it's amazing, you know. Um, I think a good writer is when you make it as real as possible, mm. you know, and authentic. I like to use the word authentic, mm. you know. Diverse is a problematic word. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It kind of gives permission for everyone to say that I'm from a certain background. Let me write my story. I think that you need to develop. You need to be pushed. You need to be supported. Um and you need to, you know, have people that support you around you to create work that's good, you know. I don't care if you're from any background, if you're from an Asian or in a Greek or mm. First Nations is a different story and I'm not going to probe into that because I don't have a right to. But I think, um, you know, from a migrant first generation experience, your weapon is your story, you know. It's all good and well if you stand on a mountaintop screaming, listen to me, listen to me. I think your weapon is that script that you create, mm. that story, you know, and write a good story. You know, I've been to a lot of plays and readings 
that I felt you know needed to be pushed and developed and helped, supported, that need more room. But when you get it right and when you have that support, it's a beautiful thing, you know. So I think persistence is also really important. Yeah, and I think you're the product of both of those things. I mean, it's it's Lady Tabuli is a great example of what happens when work is supported because it was you know supported by. Um, it had a, it had an earlier season at Griffin. It had support from Playwriting Australia. It had support from National Theatre of Parramatta. This is just development before we even talk about the final kind of season of it. Um, and had, you know, time to have dramaturgy, time to have actors, time to have, you know, exploration. Mm. Um, and uh, there's that. And then there's also your persistence. I mean, your, your process as a writer. You are one of the most extreme writers I've ever encountered. And I say that as a as, as a compliment, you know, like it's, you, you write a lot and you take it very seriously and you, and you're constantly writing. Um, would you say you have a writing process? Yes. I think write as much as you can. Yeah. You know, wherever you are, I think, but you need to also stop and you need to spend time with a child because when you write, hmm. <laughs> you are always in your head you know, and it takes you away from reality. So when you find a relative that has a little kid, because children live right now in the moment, in the present, mm. and that's my, that's part of my process. I've got a niece now that's three and a half, you know, and I'm rejuvenated every time I hang out mm. with her. <clears throat> so and that's why you're in the park with her playing on the street. <laughs> that's, <it. laughs> yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, that's part of my process, you know. But there's no shortcuts. Absolutely no shortcuts. You know, you have to work really hard. Yeah. And you have to, you know, I've had many fights with you about cutting things and this and that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the, at the end of the day, <laughs> if it makes the work stronger, you know, I think back now and I think, fuck, he was right. That needed to be cut. That needed to be taken out. That needed whatever it is. You know, you've got to get to that point, you know. You only get to that point when you write a lot and you're persistent and you work hard. Mm. Yeah, no one has a shortcut unless your dad's rich. Yeah, and you were so generous with those things, you know, and, and I, we, we, you're, you're such a generous listener as, as much as you are a generous worker. What's, what's so interesting, though, is even with development, you know, there's just sometimes such limited time for new work to actually get to that, you know, mm. first, first production. And we have in, in Australia such a culture of no second production, you know, yes. it's not a culture that exists in a lot of other places in the world where a work will, will keep going and you can have sort of multiple cities and multiple attempts to kind of refine it. And so what you're having to do in the room is not, from, I'm saying from a directorial perspective, but also a, a writer's perspective, is you're trying to make the production while simultaneously mm. um, refining the script because things will naturally change in the mouths of actors and when you get, when you get pacing and rhythm into the process, it's a whole different, uh, you know, and you start interrogating the relationships and that. Um, but you, you know, you, you respect the other artists in the process. That's been clear in all interactions with you and you're a listener, you know, yeah. how much do you kind of draw on what, what other people are doing and what the performers are doing? It's everything. Mm. Listening is how you learn, you know, listening is how you write. Listening is how you, you know, you take on board, you go, you know, you take what you've learned that day and you go home what are you going to rewrite? Because the gold is in the rewrites, in the edits. And if you haven't listened and your voice is the one that's the strongest in the room, that is your weakness, I think. You know, 
if you want to be a really good writer, you need to listen. And also I've learned to listen at a very young age. Yeah. Um, I've always been observant of the, the world that I'm in. Um, it's just sort of part of my personality. Um, yeah, I think that if the loudest person in the room is the one that, you know, takes away the least amount of information and learnt things that day, I think listening is a power. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's like a free, a free sort of service to you if you sit there and you listen and it's priceless. You just have to stop and actually listen, take it and observe what's going on around you. Take it all in. Take it all in, yeah. Do you find writing lonely? Not at all. Mm. Not at all. Look, I have an advantage. I'm Lebanese, so I come from a really massive family. Yeah. <laughs> so if I just want to like go down the hallway, someone's always at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but I, I've found, you know, sometimes writing certain scenes upsetting, you know, like I have to sort of go through the motions, write that scene, smash it out, and then revisit it. Um, and then when I hear it in the rehearsal room, like I try to sort of, uh, there are certain things that are triggers, you know, so I'll control myself, you know, and I'll, I'll walk away and just deal with it and then I'll come back. Mm. So maybe not lonely, but there are things that trigger, you know. In this show, Son of Biblos, mm. it's like an early version that's coming up. It's an early version of myself. But um, now it's in... This is the work that Belvoir's putting in there. That's right. In 25A season. That's yeah. right, yes. Um, it's, it was a really raw sort of James. It's a really personal piece. But I've, you know, I've updated it to, you know, to bridge my young, naive brain to now. I think I've come up with something quite nice. But, yeah, back to your original word you know, of all your question, lonely... No, I don't find it lonely at all. Mm. Yeah, I find it a challenge. That's great. And there'll be people listening to this who who, who might be um, early career writers. What are some of the strategies you have to, to, you know, get out of that headspace or to, to find a balance? What are some of the things that you kind of do? Uh, um, apart, to, from, apart from hanging out with your niece. Yeah. <laughs> to exercise. Yeah. To go for a walk. I think that's the best thing you can do. I think to put it aside, if you can't crack a scene, go for a walk. You've got to be with nature. I think nature is really, really important. Put a plant in your room or wherever you're at. You know, have some green around you. Um, drink a lot of water. Be healthy. <laughs> Do I sound like my mother? You sound like both our mothers. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, totally. Spend time with older people. Spend time with your grandparents. Go to a retirement village. Yeah. Read to them. You know, if you want to be a good writer... You want to be someone that stands out, that has those original stories, that's where you go, mm. you know? That's where, that's where you hang out. Yeah, I mean, the best, some of the best writers are thieves, you know? Just, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You said it perfectly. Yeah. What excites you about where Australian theatre is right now? Um, I, think, I think that they're starting to cast different faces and colours. I think they're trying to be proactive in um, who they cast. But in terms of excitement, I wouldn't be ex – I'm not really excited about anything yet, but we're getting to a point where I could be a little bit excited. <laughs> yeah. 
Like I'm not there yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, I think, you know, they are, I know actually for a fact that um, a very powerful um, company, yeah. theatre company, are taking the steps to change how they do things. Yeah. And it's so important that they do this. And I think that is the first step to allowing inclusion of everyone's stories. Uh, it hasn't happened fast enough. And why is it just happening now? I think a lot of damage has been done by excluding stories. You know, First Nation stories, mm. um, migrant stories, older stories, mm. you know, the elderly. Like, queer what the stories, fuck, man? Yeah, what, of, yeah, yeah, queer stories. Like, let... I want to go see a lesbian play, yeah. a genuine, real lesbian play. You know, give me that. You know, why isn't that on the main stages? I, I just don't understand it, you know. Subscribers, mm. I know it takes time to turn over an audience, but if you create stories for a group of people or a community, they will come eventually. It doesn't happen, like, it won't happen, you know, put a play on, oh, everyone comes. You've got to create, a, you know, a, a fashion of including people in that and you will have a new audience. It takes ages, but you will have new – those subscribers, they will start to be, you know, different faces on those seats because all those older subscribers, however beautiful they are, they're dying. They will go. They're older. Mm. You know, who, who are you aiming your stories at now? Um, you know, on the other side of the coin – You've got to create really good stories. Yeah. You've got to create strong stories um, and stories that will sell and make money as well. Like we're not kidding ourselves. It's a company. You know, you want to sell those tickets. So you've got to create stories that, you know, are, you know, are also quite mainstream. Mm. But it also doesn't mean that a whole season has to be for every audience member. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I think the subscri- as we start to expand these voices and, and, sto- and not just voices but stories and perspectives and, you know, that you can have a whole season where you don't need someone to come to all of them. I know it's an easy way to get cash up front, but if you're doing enough audience outreach and you're really bringing new people to the theatre, you know, it's fine, I think, if someone wants to just see three shows in the season because that speaks to them and someone else might want to see, you know? Oh, absolutely. Like the models I'm suggesting might be also something that we need to reinterrogate. Maybe. Maybe. It's too much to think about right now. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to go and write the show. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's so complex, you know, to, to think about that. <clears throat> but they're the, they're the, you know, the things that we've got in place right now, you know, and if theatre companies, the big guys, the big guns are moving towards a more inclusive sort of, you know, storytelling landscape, then we are succeeding. How, mm. What harm can it create, you know? It mm. only enriches what we've got. Mm. Yeah. Have you been interested in creating work in other mediums, film, television? Film. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> and what and what what has what has driven that? Um, I've always wanted to write for film. Um, it's been I've always thought in a film like way when I write, and I've always got to go against the against that. You know, I'm always told you write to you know your the way you write is to film like. So I've had to rearrange, but film is my my first love, and I will get there. Mm. It just takes time, you know. It just happened to um, go th- the theatre route, mm. and I've fallen in love with theatre. I think there's nothing like the connection you have between 
a, an actor in front of you and mm. you're sitting on that seat and listening to that actor, there's nothing like it. It's like electric. Um, but, you know, if I want to be, you know, an 80-year-old man with a bit of money in my bank, mm. <laughs> then I've got to go in different <laughs> avenues. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, film is definitely definitely a key. I guess also, though, as, as well as, yes, having, having a bit more money because we, we know the theatre ain't paying it, um, is, you know, for some of these audiences that you're trying to attract or, or some of the people that you're trying to share your stories with, um, being able for the story to go to their home is, is a different proposition to them having to kind of overcome that barrier of actually getting to a theatre and you know what I mean? Mm. The distribution of film. Do you, do you mean that it's it's more powerful, or just that you could reach a wider audience yes. more quickly with with what film can do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Why would you you know present your work to a sold out season when you can present it to millions of people? Mm. You know, and also you touched on it before. Like we work our guts out to create a show that is great. So then what happens after the season? Mm. There's a fashion of we want to tell new stories, new stories, new stories, but, like, we won't have any classics, you know? We won't have any new classics if we keep churning out brand-new Australian stories, you know? And I, I think you're going to have a bunch of a generation of burnt-out writers. Yeah. I think we have a fashion in this country of, like, having one season and then it's gone. Mm. That's really problematic and I think I've spoken to a lot of writers about it. It's crazy. It's crazy. If your season will sell out, it will sell out again. Put the show on again somewhere else, you know. Mm. Maybe it's in the, in the, the, you know, the, the way the contracts are written up where if you agree to this, you have to agree to that. Or I don't have the answer to it, mm. but I find it mind-boggling that we just, for most shows, we have one season. Really good shows as well. Yeah. If it's a shit show, then I completely understand. <laughs> but, you know, we've got, like, I've seen some incredible shows, mm. never saw them again. Yeah. What is that, you know? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And people talk about the classics and you go kind of, you know, place like Angels in America didn't just arrive. They had so much time and so much money thrown at them or Chimerica absolutely. or whatever you want to kind of pick out as a kind of, you know, contemporary classic. Um and, and massive rewrites and massive redevelopments and multiple seasons, you know, before mm -hmm. they get to that point where you go, okay, this is now a really rigorous kind of work. Um, you're right in that we don't have that culture here. Mm. Yeah, and why don't we? What does that mean, you know, when we have that void after? Why do we want a new story when that story worked so well? Shouldn't more people be able to see the story, you know? We've got cities all around Australia that have theatres. Take those really great, you know, mm. plays, spread them around. <clears throat> Are you noticing the changes, though, as a writer, even in the, in, the, in the period of time that you've been writing for the stage? Are you noticing that it is shifting, that there is more access, that there is more opportunity to, to take those stories around? What's changed in the even in the short time that you've been kind of writing and 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 you've kind of had a quite a meteoric <laughs> experience, kind of you know going from from working and then having two Sydney festival works back to back. What is it in that short period of time? What have you also noticed has shifted? Um, there's like a fashion of scarcity that's pushed to people. I don't think that's true. I think there's room for everybody. 
Mm. I think we, you know, oh, it's all a competition. Mm. It's not a competition. There's room for every single person to have a voice when it's the right time. And your right time will come. You need to make sure that you create a really strong script. When you have that script, push it, stand by it, back it up. Someone will notice it and then you'll go on its own journey. There's room for every single person. And at the beginning, I was sort of told by a lot of people that there isn't enough room. There is only so much opportunity given to you. Um, and that's one lesson that, I learned, that I've learned. So when somebody, ask, when somebody asks me, James, you know, I'm trying to get myself out there, but I'm not, you know, I'm worried I'm not going to get this. I'm like, there's nothing to worry about, you know. Get another job. Make sure you're getting paid. Mm. Keep refining your script. You know, give it to your friends, read it, let it sit for six months, come back to it. Eventually you have a good script. I've been writing for 15 years yeah. for a very long time, you know, um, and I was told by a lot of people that I love my writing but I'll never have an audience. Mm. And I was told that very often, you know. Uh, and I, I could have given up when I got that first letter saying, James, you know, we love the story but we're sorry at the moment we you know, I could, you know, say, well, this is it, you know, what am I doing? But, you know, you've got, you can't give up with anything. Why mm. would you just give up, you know? Mm. So I think persistence, I think, yeah, I think persistence and I think, like I said, you know, there's no shortcuts. You've got to, you, you've got to stay up those long nights. You've got to, you know, surround yourself by people that are like-minded, you know. And the rehearsal room needs to be somewhere you want to be. If there's um, a vibe in the rehearsal room that feels like it's heavy, then you're with the wrong people. Mm. And that's another thing that I learned. Mm. You know, surround yourself by people that love to be there, that are laughing, that bring happiness. Like, that's what theatre is. We're telling stories, we're entertaining people, hopefully. Mm. Mm. So why would you want to go in somewhere that's where the air is thick, where you can't breathe? Mm. That's another thing, mm. you know. I've had the luxury to, you know, be in connection with so many strong, you know, strong directors and actors, you know, already just in the time that I've been writing, you know, and I've and these are the things that I've learned and realised, you know, don't... Once you finish the script and you've spent all those hours writing it and stressing over it, then you can rest and have a bit of fun. Yeah. 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 And not, and not have a heart attack when... When the director says we need, we want cuts or something. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah no, no, yeah, because everyone's on the same page. Totally, you know, totally. Well, look, your work is always infused with such love and hope, um, you know, and it's it's. I can't wait to see what what's what's what work is on stage for you in the next five ten years because it's, it's going to be incredible to watch that. Oh, Daniel, <clears> you're so lovely. Watch Thank that you. Evolution. Thank you so much for chatting with us on Staging the Nation. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely welcome. I've had a great time. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Staging the Nation. If you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe. See you next time. Staging the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatre's Parramatta. Executive Producer, Joanne Key. Producer and Technical Director, Daniel Holsworth. Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate Producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. 
Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening.